now to Genesis chapter 6. You will probably hear me say that a few more times in the next few weeks. We're going to be here for a good while. But I can promise you one thing. We will not be in Genesis chapter 6 for a whole year. It's possible, but I won't do that. We may just get to 7 and then at the end of the year. Genesis chapter 6. Our focus today is going to be on verses 4 and 5. And in particular, verse 4, as we deal with the Nephilim dilemma, the dilemma of giants. We have been dealing in the last couple of weeks with a question, why would God destroy the whole earth with a worldwide flood? Why would God destroy the whole earth with a worldwide flood. There are those who believe that, well, the daughters of uh, Cain uh, intermarried with the godly line, uh, the sons of Seth, because their interpretation is that the sons of God are the sons of Seth and the daughters of men are the daughters of Cain. But uh, as we have discovered in our previous studies, that uh, that would just seem to be odd that uh, with sinner marrying other sinners, uh, the only thing that will come out of that is more sinners. So there has to be another reason. There has to be a greater reason. And so we have dealt with the fact that sons of God, in fact, are fallen angels. Daughters of men are just that, daughters of men. Did they come into some kind of a union that would bring about some unnatural offspring? That's the question we want to deal with today. Because in verse 4 it tells us there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Shall we pray? Father, it is our desire to know your truth. And we want to take the time to dig deep into your word. And we do thank you for the privilege, the opportunity to do that here. We ask that you would anoint us and bless us with your spirit. We pray that you would grant us wisdom and understanding, Lord, so we can fully understand why these things are as they are. But at the same time, we realize, Lord, that there is a certain amount of knowledge that we need to acquire from this for our own daily lives, our own daily understanding of how we are to live in a time that mirrors, to some extent, the days of Noah. So grant us that understanding today, Lord, we we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when we began our our study of Genesis 6 a couple of weeks ago, I asked that you would keep an open mind and examine and investigate all of the biblical facts without inserting any preconceived notions or ideas and 
And then I wanted you to remember two verses of Scripture in the process of understanding this chapter that we're looking at today. So I took you to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13. He that understands, or I'm sorry, he that answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame unto him. He that answers a matter before he hears it. So, listen. Listen to all of the evidence. But I gave you Acts 17, verse 11, because Luke writes about Paul's visit to Berea. And there the Bereans are mentioned uh, in Paul's trip by Luke this way. These, the Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word, as Paul was preaching it to them, they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. So that's the foundation here for us. We want to listen to all of the evidence that we're given And then we want to be able to receive it with readiness of mind. And we want to search the scriptures. Well, this is all the more important today as we seek to conclude this portion of our study for the reasons why the Lord would bring about a worldwide flood upon mankind to the point of leaving only eight human survivors along with a certain number of animals. The eight survivors, of course, being Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, eight people. Now, we've nearly exhausted the issue of whether the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, uh, we've, we've exhausted the issue of whether they were the sons in the line of Seth or whether they were angelic beings. Now, the scriptural evidence has clearly shown, at least from our investigation, that they were fallen angelic beings. But I say that we've nearly exhausted the issue because I left out one other piece of evidence until now. And I'll give it to you in just a moment. But but even though we have referenced it, but we need to see it again clearly uh, as we've seen the other references. The argument has been, of course, that the sons of God are the Sethites or the sons of Seth and the daughters of men are the daughters of Cain. And there are those who hold to this thing that uh, this is what we find here in this passage in verses 1 through 6 or 1 through 5, that the godly line of Seth was mixing with the ungodly line of Cain. And, And we have more or less from what we have studied debunked that. So to stay consistent with what we have to see here, uh, uh, or to stay consistent, we have to see what the text says. So in the last couple of weeks, I've given you this very clearly. The sons of God, the B'nai Ha'elohim, are angelic beings. We saw it not only in our study of the book of, of Job, the three times that it's mentioned there, the, the phrase the sons of God, but uh, we've seen it in other references throughout the scriptures as well. The daughters of men, and this is the added piece of, of evidence here that I gave you because we referenced it, but we didn't really give you the, the Hebrew the Hebrew is Benot Adam, Benot Adam. And it's important to remember that Benot Adam, the daughters of man, refers to the natural female descendants of mankind. And that no particular genealogical strain is specified. It doesn't specify Cain. You have to add that in. So if this be the case then, 
And the comparative passages we examined last week in Jude and in Second Peter concerning the pursuit of strange flesh. If you were last week, you remember that. Uh, if, if these corroborate these findings, then there is then good reason to see why the flood took place. Now it makes more sense. An unnatural offspring has been created, or at least brought to be. But another piece of the puzzle is necessary to examine. It is the offspring itself. It is what it says in the Hebrew, the Nephilim, the giants. We need to look at this today. There were giants in the earth in those days, it tells us in our text. And also after that. That little phrase there, by the way, is actually pointing to a time after the flood. Because the giants before the flood are going to be destroyed in the flood. But it tells us that there are going to be giants even after that. And we'll, we'll get to that after the flood. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men. And they bare children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. Now, you have to stop again and and just consider why, if we know that men and women have been gathering together for, you know, well, since uh, uh, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel, and then we know that later on that Cain would would have his own line and his own family, and they would go off, and so on and so forth. Seth would have his line, and and then even Adam and Eve themselves, you know, uh, they would continue to procreate, and there would be men and women, you know, having relations so that they would have more children. That was going on. Why would it have to be mentioned again if it was just men and women? That children were born unto them. You see, there's a key to seeing that that phrase there, they bear children to them, is significant to the context of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Because this is different. It has to be different than just normal, natural children born. They bear children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old... Men of renown. Let's deal with the word giants here, the Nephilim. The Hebrew term for giants, as I've already stated, Nephilim. It literally means fallen ones. Fallen ones. It comes from the Hebrew word Nephal, N-E-P-H-A-L, transliterated, which means just to fall. They are the fallen ones. When the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew, or I should say the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, when the Septuagint was translated, uh, when it translated the word uh, Nephilim, they wrote the word gigantes or gigantes, which is the word, of course, where we get the word giants. Very, it's much more closer to our understanding of this, the word in Spanish, gigantes. But it's G-I-G-A-N-T-E-S. That's the Greek word, which is interesting because one of its meanings is earth-born. The word gigantes means earth-born. That's interesting because that seems, while it seems strange and maybe even self-defeating if you're trying to, to prove the angel position, until you dig deeper into its meaning and its usage, earth-born. You see, the Greek root for the term gigantes is the word gigas, which is a form of geganon, which again means earthborn. 
And it's the term that has been used for the titans. The sons of heaven and earth in Greek mythology. Have you, how many of you have ever heard of the Titans? I'm not talking about the football team. Uh, the Titans, okay. You, you, in other words, how many of you study Greek mythology at one point in time? Okay, see, more of you raised your hand that you study Greek mythology, less of you raised your hand when you, uh, that you knew about the Titans, which means you fell asleep the day that they taught about the Titans, right? Okay, so anyway... Before you start getting a headache with all this information and, and thinking that you're back in school after all these years, no, there will not be a Greek mythology test. It is imperative, though, that we touch on a few things along these lines. Please consider something for just a moment. My bringing up the, the Titans here is very crucial to our understanding of the text where we are right now. For this reason, every ancient culture from which our modern cultures derive. Every ancient culture contains stories of giants similar to those found in Greek and Roman mythology. Every ancient culture. And, and, and here's the thing. In most of these mythologies, relations between gods and women yielded half-god, half-man titans called demigods or heroes. They were part terrestrial, they were part celestial. Part human, part heavenly, I guess. Celestial, gods. The ancient Prometheans, the Prometheans coming, of course, from, from the person named, uh, or, uh, or one of the Titans actually, named Prometheus, who was a brother of Epimetheus. And uh, by the way, Prometheus means forethought. He was the god of forethought. Uh, in other words, he thought before he acted. So he was a good guy. You know, he he, he seemed to want to help man out. Uh, he he had a fight going on with Zeus uh, for some of the you know ways that he could help man out, and Zeus was trying to take it away from. But anyway, I'm not going to go into all of the details of that. But, but Prometheus' brother, by the way, Epimetheus, his name means afterthought. And uh, uh, Epimetheus um, was actually uh, more considered an idiot. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, you have to do the study. They were always together, and, 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 and you know, Prometheus was a good guy, and Epimetheus was, was all the, the bad guy. Anyway, you get an idea now. By the way, their other brother was tight. Uh, I'm sorry, Atlas. You remember Atlas, you know, with the world and all of that? And just, okay, so uh, the ancient Prometheans now are considered the phenomenal but abnormal creatures who gave to men the sins and the secrets of the gods. And these are just a few of the examples. I mean, we could talk about a whole bunch of other guys. But here's the thing. Could they all have been based, albeit exaggerated, but could they all have been based on what took place in the days of Noah? You see, here's the thing. There are a lot of people that say, you know, well, you know, when you read the Bible, I mean, some of those things, you know, you can read those things in Greek mythology. You can read those things and, you know, these things happening. Uh, Prometheus was even considered a Christ figure and and whatnot in here and there. So the Bible is kind of borrowing from all of that. Really? What came first, the chicken or the egg? Do you understand? 
Something had to be based on something else that was real. If we try to base the things that happen in the Bible based on mythology, then everything beyond mythology does not become real. But if you base something on reality, later on, it becomes myth. You know the difference. The fact of the matter is, one is real and the other is not. The Bible and the things that took place thousands of years before mythology, the mythologies came about were actually borrowed from this particular passage here. Think again on, on the flood itself. How many cultures today? You know, the, the ancient cultures, of course, have all had some flood story. It may not, you know, the, the one thing that's the same is that there was a worldwide flood. A lot of the characters change. A lot of it becomes myth. Some of it becomes legend in one culture or another. But one thing is true. There was a flood. Guess what we know today? We know that there was a flood because we examined the whole of the geology of the earth. And we find then that there is truth to what the Word of God says. And that's the point that we're making here. Could all of these... Prometheans and Titans and all of these things, could they have all been based, albeit exaggerated, on what took place in the days of Noah? Well, the best explanation for these Nephilim is still found in God's Word, not in Greek mythology, but in God's Word. So here's a question that takes us back to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. How did Satan, the serpent, end up here on earth and in the Garden of Eden? How did Satan end up on earth? We have to ask this question because of the beginnings of the fallen angels. And how did they fall and how did they come to this earth to be able to be in this position where the sons of God have relations with the daughters of men? Well, we have to go back to Isaiah chapter 14. Now, this is just a review of what we said about Satan back in chapter 3. So we've studied this before, but I'm only going to give you the scriptures. But it's important for us to read them again. In Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, it speaks of, a, of, a, of, of an angelic being named Lucifer. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Lucifer meaning light bearer. How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast in thine heart or thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my thrones above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I, sh- I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. This is a created being saying to God, I am going to be in your place. I am beautiful, I am exalted, I am holy, and everybody knows it that's around here, and, and uh, so I'm going to be this one. And God says, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. And that becomes his destiny. We read on in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 19, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of, of Tyrus, and say unto him, by the way, the king of Tyrus was, was going to be the, uh, the person that this particular prophecy was going to deal with uh, 
first of all, but the whole of the prophecy itself would extend all the way to Satan, as you'll see in just a moment. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. It speaks of the beauty of this angel. It speaks of the, of the, the very uh, position that he had. It says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Isn't that an interesting thing? Thou has been in Eden, the garden of God. Who was in the garden of, uh, of Eden? We know Adam was. We know Eve was. It's not speaking of them. There was a serpent, wasn't there? Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, topaz and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald and the carbuncle and the gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created, which suggests something that a lot of people believe, that this particular angel was the very worship leader before the throne of God. The tabrets and the pipes, the, the instruments of worship. Thou art the anointed cherub that covers. The cherub, of course, being an angelic being. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. What was his boast? I'll ascend into heaven. I'll, I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. And then it says, Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled them, uh, the midst of thee with violence. I want you to remember that thought of violence with this particular creature. Thou hast sinned, and therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by re reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings, that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. Hell was created for the devil and his angels, wasn't it? And then Revelation... To bring and tie this all together, Revelation chapter 12 gives us another picture of this being, except it's a different uh, image. There appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. But this is what we want to take note of. It says, His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. And the thought here, this is, a, uh, this is a, an image, this is, this is a symbolism. The stars of heaven being the angels. The tail drew the third of the angels to become the fallen angels, the demons that we know of today. And what has Satan's desire been? It has been to devour the seed of the woman. The child born to the woman, woman being Israel, the child being, of course, the Messiah. But the point is, the devil has done everything he can to devour this seed, 
Keep that in mind, please. But fallen angels, because that's where we're aiming at uh, in all of this, the fallen angels that left their first estate, that left their habitation, their you know the habitation of their body, as it were, what they were created to be in, in the first place. Fallen angels have left their first estate to go after strange flesh, the daughters of men, and give themselves over to fornication with, with them. All of this seems to fit this intrusion in Genesis chapter 6 that would lead to an unnatural offspring from that union, which begs the question. Again, the unnatural offspring being the giants. But but it begs the question, do angels have those capabilities? Now, before we move on to answer that question, let me add three more verses. To that list of verses I gave you earlier on about the ones that we need to use to examine and to, uh, to uh, investigate what we're going through and to listen to everything. Three more verses I want to give you. First of all, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Because here it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are some things that we don't know that God has... That's kept from us, but that's okay because God is a, a great God to keep those things from us, and, and there's reasons why. But whatever He has revealed to us, we're dealing with, with the things that He has revealed to us. That's what we, we're wanting to study and investigate. So we can be thankful then that He's given us something to look at. But here's the thing, the secret things belong to Him. Always remember that. We can't always know everything or understand everything that we see in the Scriptures. God has His reasons why we don't know fully the capabilities of these particular creatures. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I said last week that this idea of of the sons of God being the fallen angels and the daughters of men just being the daughters of men, that, uh, you know, the sons of God, as, as, as far as angels are concerned, was the prevailing understanding of the word until into the second or third century after the birth of Christ. Which means that all of a sudden we were going from what, what the text said to what men believed or wanted to believe. It's easier to think. Oh, listen, it's just probably just men and women. Godly line with ungodly line. Well, if the godly line starts to, to carouse with the ungodly line, they're no longer godly. So, you know, we have to kind of keep that thought in mind. God knows why. His ways are beyond our past, you know, beyond our finding out. But let, let me read that to you. Romans 11:33. This is the third verse of Scripture to keep us on track here. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. There's some things we'll never understand until we get to heaven. That's okay with me. I don't know everything, and I and I just thank the Lord that whatever we do know, we can see it in the Scriptures, and it supports itself. So I'm thankful that, you know, whatever things we may not fully understand, God has the understanding of it. That's good enough for me. So while we may not know much about the nature or the essence or the capabilities of angels, we do know they don't have a problem materializing into our space-time continuum. They don't have a problem doing that. I mean, I've already mentioned that they speak and appear as men in the Scriptures. 
that they eat meals, that they even took people by the hand. They, they were even capable of direct combat. All of this we see in the scriptures. Go to Genesis chapter 18 for just a moment. We, we brought this up last time about uh, Abraham. And, and you know, it wasn't just angels with, uh, with Abraham. We're told that the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre. And he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day, speaking of Abraham. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, the three men stood by him. So the Lord wasn't alone. When he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Interesting, isn't it? He could see them. But more than that, he goes and tells Sarah, hey, listen, prepare a meal for these guys. And he goes and it says in verse 8, he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. These beings ate. In the next chapter, chapter 19, a more serious event takes place. Well, it was serious for Abraham. But now, these visitors come to Lot, the nephew of Abraham. And Lot is in Sodom. So in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, these men come. It's interesting that they come to Lot's house. And the men of the city of Sodom pursue these men. And they come to Lot and say, let those men come to us, that we might know them, have relations with them. And Lot did all he could, you know, to try to be a very hospitable person to his visitors, but these men wouldn't have it. They became violent with Lot. Lot went out and tried to offer them his own daughters. I don't know. They wouldn't do it. And then they became very angry with Lot, who was a foreigner, by the way. He wasn't from Sodom. And so they were going to get him for that and, and take these people by force. And it was the angels, we're told in verses 10 and 11 of Genesis 19, the men put forth their hand. Now notice what they do with the hand. They put forth their hand and pull Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they worried themselves to find the door. They took a hand and they brought Lot back into the house. These were angelic beings. But if you think that that's a capability that... Uh, is interesting for them to have. What about one angel having the strength to take out almost a whole army? Second Kings 19, verse 35. It came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out, smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred fourscore and five thousand. That's a hundred and eighty-five thousand men. One angel killed a hundred and eighty-five thousand men. Fought them, beat them, destroyed him. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. I can tell you this. 
You don't want to mess with angels. You don't want to mess with angels. If they can do that. We want angels to be white in their white garments with their long blonde hair with little halos looking so angelic or the little chubby ones flying around shooting arrows. <laughs> and man, this one angel, man, took out 185,000. That's the image we need to understand here. Angels do appear as men. They do, they do appear as men. Acts 1, verses 10 and 11, they, they, the, the disciples looked steadfastly toward heaven as, as Jesus was, was ascending. Uh, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall, come, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. The angels gave a, a, you know, a prophecy. But they were men. They appeared as men in white. So what do we know of the capabilities? This is what we know of their capabilities. Would that be at all? Obviously not. Obviously they're capable of a lot more. But let me just say this. One more thing before we go on. The New Testament suggests that many of us have possibly encountered angels without discerning any uniqueness from them. Hebrews 13, verse 12 says, Be not uh, forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I've read a lot of stories about that. Giving a a person a a meal or someone coming by and eating something. and You know, they've entertained them. They've been hospitable to them and whatnot. And... The next moment, they're gone. And yet they look like a person. They talk like a person. They probably even smell like a person. And the next thing you know, they're gone. So we have to take all of these things into consideration. Well, let's wrap all of this up now by gathering a few more important bits of evidence from our text. In Genesis 6, verses 4 and 5, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty. Notice the emphasis. Mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, years ago, and and this may be dating uh, some of us if you know who I'm mentioning, I I used to listen to some big band records uh, that used to belong to my my father. It was a group uh, that was led by band leader Les Brown. And it was Les Brown and his band of... Renown. How many of you remember Les Brown? Let's see. All the ancients, raise your hands. It's okay to be ancients here. <laughs> Les Brown and his band of renown. I always thought, man, that is the coolest name for a band. Les Brown and a band of renown. And, and uh, so men of, men of renown sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, when, if you have a big band. <laughs> but in our text... Why would that phrase be followed by, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth? That's not so good. 
So there has to be something about the characteristics of these giants that were mighty men, they were men of old, and they were men of renown. First of all, the phrase became mighty men. It points to a Hebrew term, hag giborim. Gibor means mighty. Hag giborim in the Hebrew means mighty ones, heroes, chief men, champions. Does that sound familiar? You see, each of these terms, mighty ones, heroes, champions, each of these terms, when, 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 when translated into the Greek, were applied to the earthborn, the earthborn mythological offspring that we've previously mentioned. That's interesting. It's an interesting tie-in. But that's not the kicker. I want you to consider the next phrase. This is even more spectacular here. Men which were of old. The Hebrew word for old is the word olam. And it is the same word used throughout the scriptures for the words ever, everlasting, perpetual. Suggesting that these were fathered, these giants were fathered by by beings outside of our present time continuum. Because if we can understand one thing that we've, we've always already touched upon earlier on in our study of Genesis is that there was, a, a, there was an eternity past because with God there is, you know, He's, he's uh, you know, without beginning and without end. So for us, we have to understand there is an eternity past and there is an eternity future. We're, of course, living in the present. But it is considered that the, in the eternity past, just before the creation of the heaven and the earth, that there was this thing, or, or right at the beginning of this uh, creation of the heavens and the earth, that there was this thing that happened with Lucifer, and, and then, of course, the fallen angels, and, 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 and you know, being sent to the, to the earth. So there is that suggestion that they, these were beings that were fathered outside of our, uh, by, by fathers outside of our present time continuum. It also suggests that these offspring may have been around a good long while. That it wasn't just, you know, in that time of the days of Noah, but sometime even after the fall and the expulsion of man from the presence of the tree of life. But then lastly, the term men of renown. The word renown carries the understanding of fame, of being famous. It could also mean infamous, but uh, for our understanding here, it's fame, famous, but with honor and with authority. And this is the thing that we need to really kind of grasp grasp today. The word renown carries the understanding of fame, famous, with honor and authority. And this suggests that these men of renown were now the focus of attention for most, if not all, of the sons of Adam. And just as people embrace the mythical figures of the past as heroes, these men of renown took people's eyes off of the creator of the heavens and the earth. And they began to be exalted for their stature as giants in the land by both lines of Cain and of Seth.
They took the eyes of the people off of the Creator God, the one true God, and they began to give honor and authority to these giants. Let me say that there is one thing in favor of that natural sons of Seth and daughters of Cain interpretation. Everything else is kind of falls apart, but there's one, there's this one thing that has in its favor. It, it seems to fit well with the general theme of Genesis 4 and 5, which is namely the contrast between the godly and the ungodly lines. But two things must be pointed out. First, by Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, all the lines have become ungodly. All the lines have become ungodly. Was there any, was, was there any uh, group of people? No, it, it was Noah. All the lines have become ungodly. And second, have we forgotten Satan? The serpent and his desire to undermine the race of man and draw men and women after himself, after God, uh, against God? You see, if Genesis 6 does not refer to demonic activity, then Satan apparently fades out in the picture, he's completely out of the picture uh, after chapter 3. But if Genesis chapter 6 refers to a further attempt by the enemy to pervert the race, then we have a reminder of his continuing hostility not only to God, but toward us as well. And I can assure you of this. Satan remembers the promise spoken directly to him by God himself in Genesis 3.15 when God said to him, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Satan is not out of the picture here. He corrupted Cain by turning him into a murderer, killing his brother Abel, thus eliminating Eve's children, one by death, the other being unfit due to his crime. And this is where Satan thinks, I I won, I succeeded. But in fact, he failed. He failed because the line of Seth was then given to Adam and Eve, and a new plan had to be conceived then. The line from Seth that would go through Noah. Noah eventually would get to David. David eventually would get to Jesus. But yet there were a lot of people born in in the line of Seth that should have remembered why God had raised up Seth. Did they remember? He had a new plan, Satan did. Corrupt the human race by intermarriage of fallen angels and human beings. Because if he could succeed now, then the thought is, how could a Savior be born to a demon-possessed mother? Now I'm going to ask you a question. Would you all allow me to to get ahead of myself? Yes? Okay. This is good. I've got to get ahead of myself here. Turn to verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9.
Where's everybody else in the line of, of Seth? No, notice verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this is a beautiful picture here. Because the word grace in the Hebrew literally means, and it's a pictorial language, and so it, it, it draws images and pictures for us. And The word itself describes a master who bows down to give a gift to an undeserving person. That's the picture of God giving grace to Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But it's in verse 9 that I want you to see something. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Now, we know that the word generations usually refers to genealogies. But what does perfect in his generations mean? The word perfect in Hebrew, tamiyim, means without blemish, sound, healthy, without spot, unimpaired. And it is used of physical blemishes in the scriptures, suggesting that Noah's genealogy was not tarnished by the intrusion of the fallen angels. Now understand this. Does this mean that everyone except Noah was tarnished physically? I don't believe so. But remember, remember that one does not have to steal to be considered a thief. One does not have to steal to be considered a thief. One does not have to immerse himself in the vat of pornographic material to have a pornographic mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus talked about it. The followers of the law would say, I don't do this, I don't commit adultery, I don't do this, I don't do that. And what did Jesus tell them? If you think it, You've done it. You see in Proverbs 23, verses 6 through 8, it says, Eat thou not the bread of him that has an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. The morsel which thou hast eaten shall thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. You see, the people may have simply embraced their new heroes over and above the true and the living God who created them. So what happened to a godly line of Seth? Yes, there was that godly line from Seth to Noah. That would continue on. That's what, what Satan was trying to destroy. 
But what about everybody else in the line? By verse 5, no one's godly. Except for Noah. And of course his family. We'll deal with that later. But it does bring us to verse 5 of our text. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And isn't that interesting, you know, that we think, well, you know, here God is, is, uh, is giving us this picture of all of this stuff that's going on, these angelic beings having, having relations with, 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 with women and, and, and bearing children that become giants and, and all. But now the giants are getting all of the acclaim, they're getting all the, the fame, and they're being the ones that are being looked at by everyone. Remember I mentioned to you about the violence of Satan? What about the violence of Greek mythologies? What about the violence that we see in all of those uh, uh, studies and histories of, of, of all of the mythologies that come out of this? It's all violent. There was violence. It tells us in verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. They had embraced, you see, what these giants represented. An unnatural offspring. And yes, we learned in Jude and in Second Peter that these very fallen angels that committed these, uh, these atrocities, or these abominations, I should say, they were placed into a prison called Tartarus. Tartarus is a word that is used in Greek mythology. A prison. But it wasn't mythology to Peter when he writes that in his second letter. It was a real place. That's why it says God saw the wickedness of man. Man had taken their eyes off of God. The moment we start taking our eyes off of God, man, we're going to head in a wicked direction. And let me ask you this. Are we living in a wicked time? Do we live in wicked times? Do we live in wicked circumstances? We know that we do. We live in perilous times. Satan is still at it today. So if we thought about taking Satan out of the whole picture, then, yeah, okay, it was just sinners and sinners and and creating more sinners, but the sinners got, you know, the sins got worse and worse and worse, and that's why God brought about this flood. It was something else, you see. The unnatural offspring. And it's clear in verse 4. But man will be judged for not trusting in God. And leaving Adam... I should say, leaving Noah to take his wife and his sons and their wives 
onto the ark. For the flood to come. And yes, I believe there was room on the ark for other people. But no others came. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul. Because Satan is still at it today, remember these words. Finally, my brethren, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Be strong in the Lord. Take your eyes off the things of this world and put your eyes upon Jesus Christ. He's the power that we need to stand with. We're told here, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, the belt of truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, which he shoots at us each and every day. But I want you to notice that we can quench all the fiery darts, Not some of them or most of them, all of them. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We need to have a prayer life that begins by the moment we we open our eyes and, and, and continues until we have to close them. Because the days are evil. As in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. We need to be desperate for God. We sang about it earlier. We need to be desperate for God. Yes, He's with us. Yes, He's in us. But all the more, we need to be desperate for God. Because the days are are evil. And we need to look for the coming of Jesus Christ. And we need to be ready for his return. And we need to quit playing games with God. And we need to start getting right with God. We need to start asking the, the Lord to change us. Make us new creatures in Christ. We need, to, we need to desire Jesus more than we desire anything else. And then we need to live for Him. We need to let others know. It takes commitment. It takes understanding. The days and the times in which we live are not safe ones and will never change. We'll never see this world become better. But there is a kingdom where Christ is, where he wants you to be. If you want to be there, if 
Because God wants His creation to be with Him. But if we turn away and we begin to look at all the other things of this world and delight in those things more than delighting in the things of God, it's not going to happen. My encouragement to you today is draw near to Jesus because He is the one who has defeated Satan once and for all. Satan is defeated because of the cross. Satan is defeated because of the work of Jesus Christ on that cross. Our sins are forgiven because of the blood that was shed by Jesus. And death is destroyed because Jesus rose again. All of that taken care for you. Receive it. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Don't neglect Jesus Christ. Don't neglect him. Let's pray.